Safeguarding in Africa, Building Redress and Accountability. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, and welcome to Everyone's Business, a Safeguarding Podcast. This mini-series of podcasts is part of the 39 Essex Public Law Podcast. And in this series, we look at how safeguarding is developing, not only here at home, but around the world. We look at safeguarding adults as well as children, and we explore safeguarding in different settings. I'm your host, Ian Brownhill, and today I'm joined in the studio with Dominic Apolinski. Before becoming a solicitor, Dominic worked as a teacher in inner London, caring for children and young people from deprived backgrounds. And through that experience, he decided to pursue a career in the law, in particular, working with young people and other vulnerable people in order to champion their education and human rights. Dominic's practice is now predominantly focused on safeguarding issues and he's a partner at our friends Hunter's Law and he's a consultant at HL Safeguarding. Dominic works all around the world, including in Africa. And that's why we've asked him to be here today to talk to us about his work and to talk to us about safeguarding in Africa, building redress and accountability. So Dominic, straight off the bat, tell us a bit about yourself and about the nature of your work. Hello, good morning. Um, Well, my work sort of, first of all, particularly in safeguarding, started when I was a teacher um, in the secondary and tertiary sector in inner London. And at the same time, I evolved to being a a trade union officer in the branch where I dealt with employment rights, work practices uh, and other sort of issues affecting lecturers and their working conditions um, at the time. And it was quite an industrial period of upheaval. Uh, I must say, but um, all good experience. And with that, um, the interest I had in human rights um, very much developed. And then I transitioned to the law, uh, became a solicitor with a a major firm, a national firm, um, before developing um, there, I developed my practice with charities and human rights and educational institutions uh, and was very fortunate to end up at Hunter's Law, where now I'm the head of charities the social enterprises team, and particularly the safeguarding team. Um, and we are truly international in our outlook and our experience. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a wonderful uh, place to work. I've got a great team that has got tremendous experience on the ground, um, as well as in the UK, in, in very remote areas, with very challenging, um, new sort of uh, unique initiatives, which we are sort of rolling and implementing, and indeed designing to face the evolving sort of safeguarding environment, the challenges it throws at NGOs and other organisations. Uh, and part of that is HL Consulting, which is a uh, seems to me to be a completely different model of some offering this type of service. So, so tell us all a little bit about that as well, please. Yes, HL Safeguarding was very much um, the culmination of a number of years of experience and, and uh, expertise mm. on the ground, particularly in Africa, the Far East, uh, and also being fine-tuned in Australia. Essentially, it's a very unique consultancy that is very proactive, its emphasis. We are there to help um, our clients, charities, educational establishments, faith groups, NGOs, um, ensure that their staff, volunteers, uh, and their leadership, and the, as well as their activities, does no harm uh, and, and puts the, the interests of those they serve um, and they, the beneficiaries, indeed the communities they live in, first and foremost. And we're very much a believe that if you put the rights of those who you serve and vulnerable groups of children and elderly people first, the reputation of your organisation, not just internationally, but in country where you operate, will thrive and will follow. 
So we, we do a lot of work in terms of um, identifying, preventing harmful, abusive behaviour and practices, auditing, um, training and mentoring, as well as planning and implementing new sort of projects which are either directly providing um, services or aid in country or working with partners at arm's length who are doing that for the, the organisation that we, we advise. So uh, somebody was asking me recently whether I thought that safeguarding as a concept of international law, uh, and I just would be really excited to hear your take about that, please. I think internationally, there's always been the standard uh, from the, the UN Charter of the Rights of the Child. Um, that was implemented, particularly in this country in the 1992, uh, and particularly in sort of developing countries. Um, you also have international standards since particularly 2002 have come really alive and been much more adopted by NGOs and other sort of charities in terms of the standards that they, they operate in country. At the same time, you've seen recently, since 2018, the emergence in the international and national media, sort of social activism, yeah. of the real inequality and the real unfairness and injustice that individuals and communities across the world in developing countries suffer mm. and have suffered. And I think this has really galvanised not just the courts in this country, but also the international organisations um, and indeed the, the countries themselves uh, where these organisations operate to try and find a solution, to find ultimately accountability. And that's the goal, justice and accountability. And when we talk about justice and accountability, one of the things that perhaps I would say worries me, perhaps that puts it slightly too strong, but one of the trends that I have noticed is the focus that there seems to be on safeguarding children, but perhaps not such a good focus when it comes to safeguarding adults who are at risk of abuse. Uh, what's your experience been in respect of, of that? I Very much the same, unfortunately. I think that's where the money is. That's where the, the media attention and focus has been for a long time, particularly with these recent scandals that have, have come across uh, and been broadcast. Um, and people have really found themselves in some areas to, to, to really catch up, the need to catch up and, and try and sort of improve their uh, practices, but also the barriers um, and their operational standards and, and activities. So I think it's, it's work in progress, but I think there's something that, that can be done, should be done to be more um, consistent across the board. But yes, the, the focus of a lot of safeguarding has been particularly those who are under the age of 18. So how do you build a consistent international model that looks at not only safeguarding children, but safeguarding adults? You've got to think global. This is a global problem that needs a global solution with each um, country uh, region playing its part with the help of the NGOs that operate. So you think global, mm -hmm. you act local. And that is something that particularly we've noticed and we've adopted, um, particularly in development of toolkits that we have uh, in safeguarding, which are ultimately designed to provide structures, facilities for civil redress and accountability for those who have been harmed or affected, um, as well as their communities in a meaningful way. And that is at standards which are, it's not going to work at an English standard, particularly in a developing country, you've got to have an appropriate international standard, but one which you know, the resources can, can match and cope with. But of course, the real problem that we're noticing for a number of years is the litigation culture, which is frustrating 
um, the ability of local um, ministries, courts, uh, law enforcement to deal effectively with safeguarding issues, historical, mm-hmm. but also those contemporary in terms of um, uh, exploitation, um, the the whistleblowing, the harassments in the workplace, um, it's particularly common um, with organisations and indeed um, educational establishments. So how does bringing a claim, well, I'm going to say how does bringing a claim in this country deprive an opportunity? I suppose that's the wrong language, but, but effectively giving claimants redress in the United Kingdom or, for example, Australia, America, Canada, wherever, rather than in the in the country where the action took place. What impact do you say that has? Quite a profound impact, and it's it's not uh, clearly visible for, for many people. Go on. Unless you're on the ground. Essentially, when claims come to the UK, um, they invariably bypass the local safeguarding authorities who are none the wiser. Mm. They bypass law enforcement. They bypass the ministry, the courts. And they say, well, we can't get justice locally. Mm. Um, the courts are clogged. Um, the the organisations that we're complaining about are all too powerful. Um, And therefore, we can't rely on at least free access to justice in these countries. And therefore, England is a natural choice. And therefore, the English justice and English courts will provide that justice and remedies in the best way. I'm not sure that's right. Um, And I think... I, I always puzzled by this argument, particularly the length of time I've been in country talking to very uh, wonderful professionals from judiciary to practicing lawyers, some many of whom um, grew up and trained as, as lawyers here in this mm. country before going back to live uh, in these countries. Uh, and they are, it, it sends a terrible signal to the community, the judiciary and the courts in these countries that, you know, you're not good enough to be able to address these issues. You're not sophisticated enough to address these issues and that we, we, we can provide a better system of address. And I say that's not, that's not right. Um, there's a lot that can be done and is being done, particularly the work that we're doing, to provide meaningful, effective, sustainable models of civil justice uh, and accountability. Because accountability is one of the key things which suffers when claims go abroad, because there's a lot that gets lost in the process. Communities, they see these claims go and they hear nothing more of it. Mm. And nothing seems to change. Whilst if you have an effective, accessible system of justice for people who have been harmed, it's not adversarial, it's factual, and it's there to be accessed, to be processed, and to be implemented on the ground with the input of those organisations who are at the centre of those complaints, then I think that's the best way to develop an effective global structure of safeguarding with the dignity and the interests of these victims very much at the front. Is there not, though, an argument for a twin track? So, so I can see your argument. I can see that we shouldn't deny people justice in their own country, especially if they were harmed in their own country. That, to me, seems almost an irresistible argument. But in terms of your point about accountability, is there not something that we have to get better at here, which is we have these charities, NGOs, domiciled in this country, working Mm -hmm. all over the world. We have to tackle 
the issue centrally where they're domiciled as well as what they're doing in those particular countries, don't we? I quite agree. There needs to be an end-to-end safeguarding system, particularly monitored, regulated and controlled, uh, supervised, I'd say. Um, look at the, the, the wonderful work that the Foreign Commonwealth Development Office um, has been doing uh, since 2018 in helping uh, with its strategies, NGOs uh, and other organisations delivering aid with, with British taxpayers' money abroad to enhance and improve safeguarding standards. But they are there's no ownership of that in, by anybody. They are standards that you're expected to. And if you fail, um, you have the reputational damage, the litigation cost, but also you lose those contracts. Um, so there needs to be something, though, for the communities and the individuals, because that ultimately, um, and the structures in country, need to be developed, invested. Um, and there has to be greater emphasis on that. Can I ask you a question quite specifically about information sharing and information sharing now that we're living in a global world. Just my experience from advising faith organisations who work abroad, one of the issues that comes up with those organisations is that when someone's identified as an abuser or a potential abuser, sometimes they just stop working for that particular organisation and they move on to a different organisation. And because it's got an international reach, the information sharing between those organisations seems to be difficult or or sometimes non-existent entirely. I just wonder, what's your experience been in respect of setting up systems whereby information is shared? It's a key part um, because that's something that, particularly in the the context of um, uh, current abuse um, allegations, particularly of, in the workplace. Um, that's something that, again, we're usually following an investigation of whistleblowing. Mm. Um, there are lots of barriers that are put up to sharing information. Mm. The rights of the individual, the rights of the, 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 the originating country, um, the rights of, well, particularly the human rights of the individual, where they, they may themselves be... Um, subjected to uh, certain treatment in country. Um, I don't think those are properly thought through. I think, again, that's something that needs to be um, properly thought out and scoped in any safeguarding mm. policy and practice and system of address from the day that before we even set foot in a country uh, to assist either an in-country partner or to deliver the services you need. I suppose for those of us who are listening or for our listener today, they might be someone who is from a policing background here, they might be from a social work background here, they might be a lawyer who works here, might be someone who works internationally like you. But how do you see or what do you see as being the model of the best thing to do if something goes wrong in respect of a safeguarding issue when someone's working abroad, in particular an NGO, what is your expectation of what that NGO should be doing in that scenario? Basic principles it comes down to, in, in, it, you, you've got to have a culture, a proper safeguarding culture. I've, I've gone into organisations in country that have absolutely nothing on paper, but they're a wonderful, fluid safeguarding culture. And there are those that have amazing, uh, pristine documents, absolutely first-class um, uh, written documents, but they're not simply practical, they're not realistic, they don't understand the risks, Mm. the environment they operate, and the dangers. Um, So on on that particular point, the key thing is, when you first get a problem that arises, take it seriously, follow the policies and practices that you have, continuously monitor and improve them. But it comes down to, what did you know? Mm -hmm. 
when did you know about this? And ultimately, what have you done about this? Mm. And invariably, for most organisations, you should report it to the local safeguarding authorities in country. Mm. And that's the key thing. And I, I know that from experience, particularly when dealing with organisations that have a central footprint in the UK and that operate abroad. When things happen, the UK authorities are very keen, and rightly so, to say, well, do the, do the local authorities know yeah. about this? What are you doing? Yeah. And this is, it comes back to the problem where when claims come to the UK, invariably you find that you know, when you talk to um, judiciary, when you talk to lawyers, when you talk to, they know nothing about this at all. And there are wonderful examples and structures already, human rights organisations and commissions, um, that are there to help, to mm. point and ministries to point mm. people in the right direction. Yes, I know going to the local police um, is an issue, particularly, and it could, could cause more harm than good. But there are systems and reporting, um, being transparent and open about this is very important. I was, I was asked quite recently about an incident that took place in an Asian country. I, I won't name the country, but one of the things I was asked about was whether or not the local police should be told because there was a concern that by telling the local police, they would actually undo any form of safeguarding investigation that took place here, or indeed locally by that international organisation. Uh, and I just wonder what your take is on that. That seems to me to be quite a, well, it's judgmental, but also is it is it systemically problematic, do you think? It is. Wherever you go, there is a local level, a layer of law enforcement um, that, that is problematic and can just add to your difficulties uh, and cause even more problems mm. uh, and a much more of a threat to, to particularly for young women. Um, so I, the, the solution to that, in my experience, has been do not go at a local level. It, it's, it's, it doesn't help you. It's not effective. What you need as an organisation is to have a link mm -hmm. and the links and a network you develop to keep yourself and the people you care for safe one of the best ways is getting to know your, uh, particularly in East Africa, for example, they've got um, human rights commissions, yeah. human rights defenders, yeah. and they're very good on the ground, very good on the ground. Uh, they are in all communities. They have access, uh, mobile access teams, um, offices that people can just walk in and report. And they are the best people to help you as an organisation uh, decide who to go to. Because let's face it, they fight government every day. Yeah. And they do a good job. And, and that includes police and army. So um, again, not all um, or law enforcement or these individuals are, are rogue, but there are those. And that's all you need is to walk into one of those situations and make your life a whole lot worse as an organisation for the people you're trying to help. So definitely use the support that's there. And that's, you know, from the expertise that we have, we can help show and point the way and make sure that there is an end-to-end -end system of confidential advice and support and assistance. And it must be really difficult, though, because it's a balancing act, isn't it? Especially if you're in the middle of a safeguarding issue that's cropped up in a country where perhaps there is concerns about the local systems that are in place. It must be really difficult for the workers on the ground to form a view as to where they go first. Well, it is, unless, of course, you've got very well-established and clear safeguarding uh, standards hmm. and rules of engagement. And I think that's where it comes from. What, what practice and procedures are you following? Yeah, This comes from the top down. It really is. And they... There has to be systems there that protect people in the field, duty of care, mm. as well as those they're trying to help and who they go to 
That's a really but interesting the lo- point. Yeah, the local the local um, branches, uh, organisations of international NGOs, are very very uh, highly skilled and very knowledgeable and very plugged in. What people forget as well is when they actually, with our help or through those organisations, they've achieved that. Great, but then they forget that there's also a wonderful resource in the British government. And the British government, particularly you know, the British High Commission mm-hmm. or the Foreign Commonwealth Office, are always here to help and guide and give contacts and information. And don't forget the regulator, the Charity Commission as well. Very important. Um, they always need to know they're here to support. Mm. Um, but it also gives them, when you are going to the, the, the Charity Commission, particularly with serious incident reporting, which is a lot of organisations do forget in the heat mm. of the moment, um, the Charity Commission... Uh, obtains all this information they can see help identify trends just like we can Mm. see on the ground and it it helps change to adapt to the threat and also the solutions i was struck by something you said earlier about um the concept of pristine safeguarding policies and i I wonder you know in my own practice day to day one of the things i'm asked to do quite often and i know you are too is to draft safeguarding policies for particular organizations and they are pristine they look good um but how do we make those policies work? I mean, I, I tell you now, I've never been asked for one of these international organisations to take my safeguarding policy and to present it to anybody. I've been asked to draft them. I've been asked to check them. I've never been asked to train on them or to... Con- one organisation asked me to consult every few years on it, but nobody ever asked me to sort of go and talk it through with anyone using it on the ground. Very good point. <clears throat> when I was a, a, as a teacher, my experience as a teacher particularly... Um, to, to really understand pastoral safeguarding situations, circumstances, uh, and effective protection, you've got to you've got to be in the school, mm. see the children, see how things work, spend time, observe, don't rush into things. It's all very well drafting remotely from an office in a different country, mm. maybe or a different area of the UK. You, you've got to allow the the the, the client, the organisation, to take the lead, and. You must see for yourself. Seeing is believing. Mm. It really is. And that adds to the simplicity and the practical fluidity of any sort of countermeasures that you can put in to safeguarding. It's not now safeguarding, particularly in the developing world, is an absolute safe, a life-saving necessity. Yeah. It's not optional. It's not an administrative function. And you must never look at it that. It's part of your, it says who you are as a culture. That's effectively what it is. Um, and that's an important mirror, an important beacon that, that you've got to get right. And p- people like ourselves, uh, who are, are very good at drafting and dealing with the minefield of issues and putting them in a practical, you know, commercial way, um, that's that's something that you know we are secondary to that. We are we are only writing what's there mm. or putting helping to put into practice uh, what is there. So I suppose again, I don't want to to sort of put something which is controversial, and I don't mean it to be controversial. But what do you think about the idea that we are exporting standards that perhaps can't be met? I mean, is there any point in trying to mirror a system that might work in England and Wales, might work in Australia, to a country which doesn't have the same social structures or the same legal structures? This is something that you can try to achieve, but I think it's doomed to failure if you try and impose the standards. It's it's simply not going to work. What you can do is, from from some of the sort of the models and toolkits that I've developed for organisations, I I have read through and I have watched and observed all the commissions, even ICSA in the Mm. UK, the the commissions in Canada, Australia, um, and all the the sort of the alternative dispute resolution community sort of conversations uh, and conference sort of materials 
on this and you take the best parts of those mm. but then you've got to be in country to understand the real problem the systemic problems that keep coming up why do they come up because people have opportunity mm. they have a space they can operate in you've got to take that that sort of space away mm. create you know, completely prevent those opportunities from creating this imbalance of power of abuse and exploitation that has to stop and so you've got to be in country to understand the landscape to build your model from the ground with a solid foundation based on the cultural norms, the cultural standards, and realistically the resources that are there, but using the best practices you can internationally. And I think that's the way that you start to do that. But again, globally coordinated, exactly. not leaving it. And this is what I was just about to pick up on, because again, I was asked a question the other day, and I, I think you will be able to answer this, I hope. Which organisation do you think that global coordination of taking away those spaces for abusers, which global organisation do you think should hold that office, hold that task, hold that portfolio? Because I, I have to be honest, I wasn't sure when I was posed that question. Because I think if you put it in certain boxes, it, it doesn't work. I mean, someone suggested to me it was a WHO job. But it doesn't seem to me to be a WHO issue. Oh, that's a very good question. It, and, and it sort of indicates that they're thinking in the right way. Mm. Um, but you cannot, I mean, safeguarding is absolutely remains everybody's responsibility. Absolutely. From top down, uh, government, uh, all the way down to NGOs too and the staff on the ground. So you've all got to have a globally coordinated structure that um, continuously updates itself, monitors itself, plugs in how things are changing. Because the perpetrators also try, all, from my experience, they, they do set up um, institutions, education institutions yeah, that's and charities that's really true. That, that also have access to briefings from governments mm, yeah. and others about the late, latest safeguarding techniques and standards to prevent abuse. So they then go away and they create new ways around that. Mm. So it, 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 it's a very fast moving and uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, creative uh, problem, which we just have to be one step ahead of. So this is why it's so important to develop the structures, mm. the authorities and the assistance in country so that they are allowed to develop uh, and provide that first and effective barrier. Because a lot of the um, harm that's happened are, are for those who've come abroad into um, host developing countries mm. because they feel that they're less likely to be detected. There's mm. less accountability. Mm. Um, and I, th thankfully, that's not the case. Um, we are working very hard with other organisations to do that, to ensure that um, there is an effective redress and accountability that will follow and, and, and provide swift justice. Do you think we have to start with policing first and then we do the social side of things or the health side of things afterwards? Or do you think we do it the other way around? Uh, in tandem. In tandem. I think it's in tandem. I think so. You can't, uh, there has to be a structure. There has to be a, a momentum to this at the same time. But if you have a very good system, uh, an accessible system where people can come and report, uh, their voices will be heard, uh, they're encouraged to report, um, then straight away. And indeed, one thing that amazes me in certain countries, that school children, they're not, they're not educated, they're not given um, the sort of safeguarding uh, lessons mm. uh, and training. The members of organisations are, the staff are, but not the children. And I think that's missing. So again, at the same time, you do need specialist units, specialist courts in 
um, these countries as well to develop under one roof. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about us, visit 39essex.com. If you want to know more about Dominic's work, then please visit www.hlsafeguarding.com. You can email Dominic on d.opalinski at hlsafeguarding.com. If you want to connect on socials, then you can add me on Twitter at Council Tweets. You can add the podcast at safe underscore cast, and you can connect with the public law team at 39 Public Law. Join us again next time for Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast available where you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. Listener.